to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having an update on the case of journalist and political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal. Also going to be discussing the plight of women and girls in Haiti as the U.S. and its allies prepare for yet another intervention in that country. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined. Joined by Jamal Jr., the grandson of Mumia Abu Jamal. Jamal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Jamal, uh, recently there was a hearing for your grandfather, a journalist and political prisoner, Mumia Abul Jamal, that I believe uh, centered around uh, him requesting a new trial. Of course, uh, he's been incarcerated for over 40 years after being framed up for the murder of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. And over that time has consistently uh, contributed a, a, a lot of valuable insight and analysis both to the news and to the movement. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, just what happened at that hearing and how did things unfold from there? Um, yeah, uh, so so I have many notes about uh, what happened at that hearing, uh, but I think I want to start with um, October 25th. Sixth uh, last week was a day of remembrance that uh, people power is political power, right? And um, so, on October twenty sixth, uh, Common Pleas Court Judge uh, Lucretia Clemens uh, issued a proposed order to deny my grandfather Mumia Abu Jamal's uh, constitutional claims of jury bias and suppressed evidence. Uh, this defense petition included newly discovered evidence found buried amongst the prosecutor's files. Uh, the evidence that was uh, found documented key witnesses uh, receiving promises of money for their testimony and evidence of uh, favorable treatment in pending criminal cases. Uh, Mumia's uh, petition also documented the unconstitutional practice of striking black jurors jurors uh, during his original trial. So, um, you know, Lucretia's 31-page intent to dismiss opinion, which was uh, which was given after uh, after the court date on on the 26th, uh, it it makes it clear that the criminal justice system in Philadelphia has a mind to uphold injustice, especially in the case of Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, it seems that. Instead of taking steps to give my grandfather, who's been incarcerated for 40 plus years for a case known worldwide for the unchecked, abhorrent racism in the courts, instead of taking steps to, at the very least, move towards a new trial, Judge Lucretia uh, challenges my grandfather's petition uh, with an intent to ignore the injustices entirely. So... Uh, what, what, when my grandfather's uh, petition came 
than to play. It's it's really because uh, days after uh, Christmas in 2018, uh, when the new district attorney, Larry Krasner, and his assistants were looking for storage to furnish his offices, uh, boxes marked with my grandfather's name were discovered. Um, when the boxes were inspected, there was a note from Robert Schobert, uh, the key witness uh, used by the prosecution to unlawfully imprison my grandfather. Uh, this note uh, was addressed to the ADA, Joseph McGill, and read clear as day, where's the money that you owe me? Uh, this note was uh, scrubbed from any filings and buried by the prosecution for 40 plus years. And, you know, judging by the 31 page intent to dismiss proposal from Lucretia Clemens and the case of Mumia Abu Jamal, racism in the courts is ignored as a non issue, as well as bribe witnesses. Uh, the claim was uh, dismissed by this judge in her written opinion as not being material. Which is wild because uh, when Brady disclosure violation comes into play, people go home. Everybody but not Mumia, right? Um, and for the people listening, a Brady violation is when the government fails to disclose evidence materially beneficial to the accused. This evidence is suppressed um, likely because it makes it easier for a prosecution to unconstitutionally um, imprison the defendant, uh, which in this case means the prosecution had hidden evidence and made secret deals that could have led to my grandfather being released from prison a long time ago. Um, and so Lucretia chose to ignore records from ADA McGill that extensively track and monitor um, another key witness, uh, Cynthia Wright, um, Cynthia White, I'm sorry, um, whose pending criminal cases were all dropped by the prosecution following her testimony. Uh, so now, today, or I guess last week, Lucretia uh, chooses to uphold a conviction and the credibility of a trial ran by the original trial court judge, um, Albert Sabo, who said, I'm going to help them fry that N-word. Um, and he said this brazenly in front of the court clerk, uh, Terry Carter, and fellow common pleas judge court, uh, Richard Klein, during the first week of Mumia's uh, 1982 trial. Um, a, a trial where the prosecution encouraged perjury by making secret deals and bribery and intentionally kept black peoples from the jury, right? Uh, Mumia, he seeks justice and seeks uh, a quote, unquote, fair trial. Um, because Philadelphia cannot move forward telling the world that they are reforming the criminal uh, justice system and being more equitable to the people in the city that's feasted and filled the stomachs of its prison, uh, its prison industrial complex uh, through their unfair sentencing and through their prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, Philadelphia can't move forward by ignoring the racist injustices uh, that happened to Mumia Abu-Jamal. I hope that uh, answers your question. Yeah, it definitely does. And of course, it raises other questions because, you know, much has been made about the progressive prosecutor in uh, Philadelphia. And we see how that's worked out uh, in, in regard to Mumia's case in particular. Um, the pro the uh, progressive prosecutor is not progressive at all. But then there is the issue of the fact that this judge is a black woman. What yeah. can we make of the fact that a black woman sitting on the bench has said that the the obvious racism 
uh, that has been exposed in this trial, in these boxes of evidence that were discovered in 2018, what does it say about the fact that a black woman sitting on the bench says, no, racism isn't a big deal, and Mumia Abu-Jamal um, stays in prison? I think it says a lot, right? Um, so it, it says a lot. It, it, it really, it really, you know, be, because it's still being, um, it's still being lit, uh, litigated, right? And it's still uh, so when when the judge presented uh, the thirty-one page opinion piece, the judge uh, provided my grandfather's defense twenty days to respond, right? And what and they will respond. Right. Because I've read this opinion piece. You you can actually uh, you all can uh, search and, and read this opinion piece. And um, a lot of it is just it's just madness, you know, just unchecked racism and just ignoring. Right. Looking the other way um, in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal um, because of, you know, let, let's let, let's be clear. Like a lot of these people, um, they, they want to feel like they're they're in the party, right? They, they want the seat at the table, which, which a lot of times, uh, makes you, or I, I guess they feel like they need to, you know, be a part of the club. Right. And in Pennsylvania, that club is racism. Right. And instead of like talking specifically like about the, um, like uh, the the judge, the judge herself, because again, it's, it's still, it's still going on. Right. Um, I'd rather talk about the bad and the real reason why these black peoples, you know, um, stay in prison. Right. And, you know, he need to be freed from his cage, you know, and, and that's no question. The world, the world over knows that except in Pennsylvania. Right. In the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal um, is less of a case of legalities and more of a case of politics, politics with an invert racist arm of government in Pennsylvania fighting to uphold my grandfather's unlawful conviction and also fighting to gain, regain power. Right. And this subvert uh, racist arm of PA government, right. The judges included, or at the very least an arm of government that, um, that looks the other way when injustice occurs. And, and that's what I think, uh, Lucrece's piece, uh, signifies that, that she wants to look the other way, uh, in the injustices of Mumia Abu Jamal, right? And, and this is likely for the perceived, uh, political bargaining power, um, with those overt racists. But, you know, I don't doubt that it's because of fear, right? Politicians that say they support a semblance of, uh, equitable changes, but do not like support it out loud and um and in practice they they they're conflict averse right and they're just as harmful as the judges that tell their peers you know i'm going to help them fry that in work yeah definitely and i mean just the the level of injustice and, and racism uh that's shot through your grandfather's case i mean it's staggering because as we noted uh, uh this is someone who has been incarcerated for several decades and at every turn uh, has been uh, uh blocked from uh, uh being granted his freedom and i feel like we should also note that i mean originally uh, mumia was on death row and it took an international campaign uh to raise up to get him off of death row and uh, without question that kind of intensity will be needed 
needed to uh, finally free him. But there's another uh, aspect of this that I wanted to raise, uh, Jamal, in terms of not only the racist character of uh, your grandfather's case, understanding that, uh, you know, the courts, the police, certainly the Philadelphia police historically and to this very day, deep history of, uh, of virulent racism, but also the political character of your grandfather's case as well. Because, I mean, I failed to mention earlier, but as I'm sure people familiar with Mumia know, I mean, he was a core uh, a Black Panther Party member in Philadelphia. I mean, we're talking about someone who first got involved in organizing in politics uh, uh, as a young teenager. And that is uh, definitely showed up in his journalism and in my humble opinion is directly connected to the fact that he's been incarcerated all this time as a part of a generation of uh, political prisoners and freedom fighters and uh, prisoners in, in exile as well. And so my question, Jamal, is, I mean, how do you see, even in the year 2022, how do you continue to see the uh, just clearly uh, political character of your grandfather's case uh, playing out here, including uh, in this most recent hearing? Well, in, um, in this profit for prisons like ERA, right, all prisoners are political, every single one of them. Um, and in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, the, the reason why uh, uh, he's called a political prisoner is uh, his imprisonment um, and the politics surrounding his imprisonment is uh, it's it's obvious, it's clear as day that it's because of his uh, his stand on politics. And, you know, when 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 we think about how we can um, like move forward and how we can, um, you know, eventually get my grandfather out of his cage. We have to think about the political aspect of his case, right? That, that, there's no legalities that's going to get my grandfather free, right? Where we're, we're starting to see that. Uh, well, I guess we've been seeing that, you know, for the 20 plus years, you know, uh, since the, there was thousands of people in the streets of Philadelphia in the nineties, right? There, there's no way that, that, um, it's only going to be legalities to get my grandfather free. And, uh, with the judge's 31 page, like opinion, right? It seems like she, she, uh, she wants to side with just ignoring it, right? Like she doesn't want to hold anybody else's water and, um, and she doesn't want to, um, uh, you know, deal with the political fallout of my grandfather, uh, you know, get, getting a new trial because in this, uh, in this landscape, right. In this political landscape where it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of people, um, who, uh, support my grandfather, right, in their cuffs, but they, you know, fail to support him in the street, right, because of politics. Um, in this political landscape, uh, I think if my grandfather does, uh, if, if he is granted a new trial, you know, he will come home, right? And uh, when, when it comes to incarcerated Panthers and incarcerated people who uh, speak out, right, um, it is intentional, to keep them imprisoned, right? The the uh, like free Mumia has been a chant, you know, like all my life, right? And um, and also, you know, some 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 years before my life began, you know, uh, and 
it, my grandfather, for by every, I guess, um, some people would perceive he is free because, you know, his voice travels the world over. But, you know, release Mumia uh, is is the chant that I want uh, people to kind of memorize and, and kind of say instead of free Mumia because Mumia needs to be released. Um, and he's only incarcerated because of his political views. And he's only uh, incarcerated because he's he's. Um, he doesn't support uh, police injustice. He doesn't support um, injustices in a court. He doesn't support injustices a world over, right? And so his voice and his presence uh, is much needed in the streets. Yeah, and uh, another thing I wanted to ask Jamal was, you know, for, for people who want to continue to keep up with what's happening with your grandfather, if they want to hear his commentaries, which he publishes uh, uh, regularly, uh, uh, where should folks go if they really want to both follow this work or become a part of it? Well, um, if, if you want to hear my grandfather's work, uh, you can go to uh, prison radio, uh, prison radio uh, definitely has um, his work. Uh, they have, it's a, it's a large archive of not only my grandfather, but it's, uh, it's also of other imprisoned, uh, peoples. Right. Um, uh, and I think if we were looking for a perspective on society, we, we should be looking to those in prison, uh, because they see, you know, the rotten underbelly of, you know, of, of these, uh, societal, uh, industrial complex, um, industrial complexes. Um, and the current uh, campaign, um, love, not fear, uh, calls for all movements, uh, that bear my grandfather's name and or face to come together in the love for Mumia and, uh, the love that he's given to so many movements over the years. Uh, love, not fear calls, uh, for the people to come together and work strategically and in concert. Uh, because again, like in Mumia's case is less a legal one than a political one. And all politics is controlled by pressure. Um, love, not fear, uh, for people who support my grandfather in their homes uh, to stand up and support my grandfather in the street, uh, to come together and love and challenge, overcome, uh, to stand up uh, to state fear. Uh, you know, the people got you. And back to back, brick by brick, wall by wall, only together uh, can we free Mumi Abu-Jamal. And uh, I think of the quote um, from Field Marshal uh, Comrade George Jackson, right? Um, and it's, Settle your quarrels, come together, understand the reality of our situation, understand that fascism is already here, that people are dying who could be saved, that generations more will live poor, butchered, have lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover you, your humanity and your love and revolution. And, you know, and that was that was said quite some years ago, but it's true today. So you can, um, you can follow us on love, not fear on Instagram, go to love, not fear.com. Um, and, uh, you, you can, you can speak to me, um, almost directly, uh, on a love, not fear Instagram. But if you want to, um, listen to my grandfather and his teachings and his works and, uh, his analysis, you can definitely go on prison radio and find that. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Jamal Jr., for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the plight of women and girls in Haiti as the U.S. and its allies push for an invasion of that country. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Rachel Domond, a writer and artist for Breaking the Chains magazine, which you can check out at BreakingTheChainsMag.org. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Rachel, in recent weeks, the uh, United Nations has published a a couple of uh, very concerning reports about uh, uh, women and girls in Haiti in their plight and an increase in sexual violence, to be more precise, which is also happening alongside uh, worsening hunger and economic conditions. And uh, of course, the kind of overarching reality of ongoing calls uh, uh, for U.S.-backed uh, de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry to step down from power. And so there are a number of uh, crises uh, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, really happening inside Haiti right now, and I think for some time. But, uh, you know, in my humble opinion, the root of uh, all of these issues is imperialism itself. But you recently published a piece about this for Breaking the Change entitled Conditions for Women and Girls in Haiti Are Dire. Intervention Will Make Them Far Worse. And so, Rachel, I was hoping you could help us understand just what is contained uh, in these reports, what's there, what's missing, and how does it factor? into uh, how conditions are unfolding there. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you have to say, Sean. I mean, I think these two these two reports from the United Nations, uh, you know, shed a really important light on the crises that are happening in Haiti. I think it's, it's good research, right, um, speaking to how, uh, you know, there really is a, a situation, uh, an economic situation that's worsening and making hunger um, uh, a more critical issue uh, in Haiti, as well as, you know, the, the sexual violence that's largely stemming from uh, actually paramili- pa- oh, sorry, paramilitary activity um, in Haiti. And, you know, while these reports really do do a good job, I would say, of, of speaking to these disproportionate impacts um, on Haitian women and children, the reports really do fall flat in terms of, uh, you know, offering any any effective solutions. I mean, you know, what What sort of suggested is pretty empty, completely misses the mark, or ultimately would just serve to sort of exacerbate these crises. And I definitely agree with you that, you know, again, these reports completely fail to speak to, uh, you know, the, the root cause, uh, which, you know, I would also say is imperialism, the long history of, of intervention, of uh, occupation, of just meddling from these foreign Western powers in, in Haiti's politics and, and political landscape broadly, uh, really since, you know, the, the Haitian Revolution in 1804, really trying to, um, you know, maintain control over different aspects of, of Haitian life. Um, you know, so I think these reports, uh, I mean, a, a big gist of the reports is speaking to, uh, you know, the the sexual violence that women and, and young children and also even just vulnerable Haitians across the board, um, men as well, LGBTQ folks. And, uh, you know, how since, you know, just last year alone, there's been a 40% increase uh, in reports of 
uh, gender-based violence, all of which is, is sort of stemming from this increased paramilitary presence. But again, these reports don't speak at all to why, uh, why these, the increase in, in paramilitary has existed, why the, the conditions, the economic conditions have worsened so, so bad for people on the island. And, you know, I think it's easy for uh, the framing around Haiti to often just, you know, in the, in the U.S. media to be about how, how poor people are, how, uh, how people on the ground are just vigilantes, right? Um, or just really have no way to uh, exert control over, you know, their situation. And, you know, it, it leads people to believe that, you know, we, I guess we just need to send more troops. We need to send more help. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, just have more of a hand to, to help them out, quote unquote. But, you know, we, we see that this really doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah, Rachel. And it's the fact that, you know, these uh, repeated interventions and military involvements in Haiti do create these conditions that lead to these issues and other issues that affect women and children in particular. So how do these instances of foreign occupation and military intervention create these situations for women and children in Haiti? Yeah, I mean, so... (laughs) The the long, long history of intervention in Haiti, whether by the United States, whether by the United Nations, which we know the United States has uh, a big, a big sort of role in as well. Throughout all of all of those interventions, it has really just resulted in a really politically unstable um, situation in Haiti. There's a complete vacuum of effective leadership and um, there's a lot of corruption that we see in the, the political leadership um, in the country. And, and ultimately right now what we're seeing is that, you know, this vacuum that exists of effective leadership um, has really created an alarming situation that has allowed for the expansion of, of paramilitary violence in Haiti. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that large sections of the country are actually controlled by uh, these paramilitary groups and, you know, creating you know, utilizing sexual violence as a means of maintaining power, right? To instill fear, to um, just expand their their power over particular areas, um, and for political aims, right? And you know, when you actually look at the history of paramilitary violence in Haiti, and I'm being very deliberate. I don't want to use the term gangs because I think that often makes it think you know makes people think that it's it's just random violence that's happening, but it's very you know, it's 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 very organized. There are organized political actors, right, who are who are at, at work here. And you know, when you look at this history of paramilitaries, they are so deeply embedded uh, with you know the Haitian military, the Haitian police, and the elites of Haiti. And you know, it's not just people acting on their own. But when you actually look at it, it's it's deeply connected to uh, you know the 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 aims of the United States, right? I mean. The current person that's in power right now, um, Ariel Henry, as, as Sean was getting at earlier, um, was not democratically elected by the people of Haiti. He does not have any effective leadership over the nation. Um, and this has really allowed for, um, you know, the paramilitaries to just take control in, in many ways around around the country and create a really unstable situation, um, a really dangerous situation that, 
you know, is, uh, you know, forcing people to stay in their homes to uh, keep women from going to work, to, from keeping children from going to school. Um, I don't want to under or understate how difficult the, the situation really is that the, these paramilitaries are creating. But we actually have to look at the root cause. Um, and that's really the, the consistent instability that has existed in Haiti because of, you know, all of the intervention, because of all of the backing up of uh, really corrupt uh, politicians, because of, you know, the, the very weapons that these paramilitaries are using are coming from the United States, right? So yeah, they're not just getting them on their own. Um, and so we really have to take a, a hard look at, you know, how these 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 issues are related to, you know, elite interests and, and political actors who are propped up by U.S. imperialism, right, um, that's allowing for this expansion of, of terror against the, the people of Haiti and especially women and, and young children. Yeah, and I really appreciate the way you're, you're framing this whole question of the quote unquote uh, uh, gangs, Rachel, because we we every almost every time we discuss Haiti here on the show, we ask the question: Well, if it's the poorest country in this hemisphere, right? How then are they getting in all of these uh, 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 high grade weapons? Where are they coming from? As you note in your piece, they don't materialize out of nowhere, and it is precisely because they come from these elite elements, these elite interests in the country and these wealthy ruling families um, like you're uh, uh, speaking about. But see, those elite interests, they're they're invisible in all of this, right? They're, they're not as, um, well, not even as, they're not public uh, at all uh, in terms of their presence. So all you see are these quote-unquote gangs with guns, and you think that that is the issue plaguing Haiti, and therefore the U.S. or the U.N. needs to uh, send in an army to invade them once more. And uh, another thing I wanted to touch on here, Rachel, another thing I wanted to ask, I mean, speaking of these reports, I mean, do you see them as an attempt to contribute to a justification of another occupation of the country of Haiti? And and I can't help but think about this within this broader history of a kind of imperialist feminism, we can call it, uh, like we've seen be uh, used towards uh, countries like Iran and Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Um, these reports are, are, you know, really just another another means of, of uh, contributing to a, a justification of another occupation in Haiti. I mean, as as was sort of mentioned, these reports completely fail to address. They skew, uh, you know, any idea of what the real root cause of these crises could be, which you know we understand here as imperialism. And I think, you know, I think when you look at uh, anything really in the United States media, um, in these reports, whatever, uh, really, like, if you ask a, a, an average person on the street what their opinion on Haiti is, it's based off of these narratives, right? And the narrative is often, on one side, extreme poverty. I mean, as you mentioned, like, Haiti is, is um, the, the poorest country in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and that's by deliberate actions, right? That's not because Haiti is, is a poor country. I mean, Haiti is a an agricultural hub, right, for instance, but is out here importing nearly 70% of its food um, because of imperialism, because it's been made to be an import-dependent country. But then on the other side of this, this same narrative, um, as I sort of was getting at, you hear, um, you know, how how Haitians are, are vigilantes. I mean, the, even the coverage of the protests that we consistently see happening in Haiti 
it's so poorly covered. I mean, really, any any coverage of, of protests, whether here or abroad in the United States, um, is is really meant to, you know, demonize the people, uh, demonstrate Haitians as really uncivilized and unable to to just basically, quote-unquote, get it together, right? Like, they, they consistently have uh, these corrupt leaders. They don't know how to uh, distribute their resources. You know, people are just living in extreme poverty. And I think to the average person, to the average viewer, you know, especially because the United States is always presenting itself as a bringer of democracy, right? Like, that it's going to come save the world, that it's the, the, the democracy police, that it's, you know, everyone just needs to be on the level of the United States. Uh, but, you know, when you see these, th- this narrative, people, the average person is led to believe, well, I guess, yeah, we do just need to bring some help to this country. Um, and, you know, these, it's again, these same empty solutions that even the United Nations reports are, are getting at is like more funding put for the police. Um, in Haiti, but as I as I just mentioned, the paramil the very paramil paramilitary violence that is happening is deeply connected to actors in the police. I mean, there's there's cross cross contamination right between the police and between these paramilitaries uh, who are enacting violence on the people. And I mean, we know that you know both the police and these paramilitaries and you know United States Marines you know really any of them are are just bringers of more sexual violence against women and and children and and girls in general and so this this really can't be the ultimate solution that we're looking for i mean and i it is important to note right that Ariel Henry, the current prime minister and really the the de facto president the acting president of Haiti right now was installed by the United States. He's not, as I mentioned, he's not democratically elected. So how would the United States ever really bring democracy to to Haiti, right? If this is the type, if this is if this is how they're moving, right? Like that's that's not anything that's democratic. And so, really, all of these things together, um, you know, these narratives is in the minds of the people, you know, sort of seeking to justify oh, we just need to go in there and, and help. And that's how we're going to really help the women and girls. I mean, we saw this, as you mentioned, in Afghanistan, Iran. Um, the list really goes on and on. And ultimately, more intervention, more occupation is just going to bring more weapons, more repression, more violence, um, and, and create a worse-off situation for not only women and children, but just working class and poor Haitians across the board. Definitely. And, you know, also, Rachel, not only have the people of Haiti been in the streets making very clear uh, uh, their desires for their country, but I mean, we've also seen, you know, demonstrations here in the United States of uh, the Haitian diaspora communities and their allies also demanding uh, uh, an end uh, to, uh, uh, or not even an end, but basically uh, resisting the idea of yet another foreign intervention in inside Haiti. And so I have to ask then, what do you see as the role of anti-imperialist feminists here in the U.S. and elsewhere in resisting this proposed occupation? How can these elements, these anti-imperialists, show real solidarity with women in Haiti as the protests inside the country continue? Yeah, I mean, anti-imperialism in its in its basic form, right, is respecting the sovereignty and the right to self-determination of other nations. And as people living in the belly of the beast, really the, the world police, as I sort of got at before, the United States, that it's, 
is so responsible for creating crises all around the world. Um, but in this particular case, creating, you know, unlivable conditions in Haiti, um, it is our duty to really be standing with uh, the people of Haiti um, and uplifting the specific demands that the people of Haiti are making. I mean, as you were speaking about in the last few weeks, um, you know, we've seen hundreds of thousands of Haitians um, in the streets in Port-au-Prince and, you know, really around the country um, denouncing the really harsh reality that has been festering under the current administration of Ariel Henry, who, again, is not a democratically elected person um, in power. He was appointed by the United States. And Henri comes directly after the previous uh, president in Haiti, Jovenel Moïse, who uh, was assassinated uh, last year, and again, who was supported uh, in, in basically a, a dictatorship of, you know, overseeing his term by the United States. Um, and so, you know, both of these, these people in power have created really horrible conditions for people, whether it's economic. Um, or around the issues of hunger, what have you, the, the paramilitary violence, and neither have any popular legitimacy among the Haitian people. And we see that the demands that people are making in the streets is both for Henri to step down from power, but also for no foreign occupation or intervention in Haiti, because the people on the ground are, are well aware, right, that the conditions that they're experiencing is because of the United States and its, its imperialist endeavors in Haiti for the past, like, 200 years. And, I mean, even, as you mentioned, there, there are people in the diaspora who have been protesting here in the United States. I was a part of a few demonstrations over the past couple of weeks here in Boston, and the average person here um, is, is, is well aware, right, of, again, the role that the United States has played in, for, in creating immigration crises, the fact that people are even here in the United States in the first place, right, because the conditions are so unstable. Um, and they know that occupation and intervention will only make a worse-off situation for people on the ground in Haiti. And so our role here really as anti-imperialist feminists is to support and uplift the demands that the people in Haiti on the ground are making. We do not need to support the bringing of more weapons, the bringing of more foreign military fighters um, who are supposedly going to help the situation to an already violent situation in Haiti, right? It would only, an intervention would only really serve to uh, try to stabilize this illegitimate uh, rule of Ariel Henry right now, a regime, who continues to, to further suppress Haitian women, and especially the people in the streets. I mean, we see the Haitian National Police killing people in the streets who are protesting right now as well. Um, and so it is really our duty to understand the history, to understand, you know, why we see what we see, really, any in Haiti, but anywhere, right? It's, it's not all just on the surface. You have to go a little bit deeper. And, I mean, really, a brief review would show that the United Nations, the United um, States are no friends of Haiti whatsoever. They would bring no humanitarian relief at all. Um, and so... It's just crucial that we are here uh, putting pressure on the United States government to oppose any sort of additional occupation or intervention in Haiti so that we can respect the sovereignty and respect the rights of self-determination um, that the people of Haiti uh, deserve. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back for another week. So much has happened. Well, that's a fact, uh, Chris, and perhaps uh, uh, one of the number one topics in the world of tech, of course, is everybody's favorite apartheid American, Elon Musk, uh, buying Twitter, uh, finally. Um, And uh, just the way things have been unfolding since then, particularly within the issue of uh, hate speech. And uh, I saw one report uh, from this company that um, uh, monitors social media content that following uh, Musk's purchase of Twitter, that use of the N-word went up 500% on the site and uh, along with a lot of uh, other uh, anti-LGBTQ slurs and uh, things like this. And, you know, this uh, I think is something people were uh, sort of pointing to as a concern with the potential of uh, Musk owning Twitter uh, with him being a quote-unquote free speech champion and whether or not free speech will get conflated with hate speech. But I feel like there's a lot to get into with this whole issue, Chris. So honestly, I'm just wondering your top line thoughts. I mean, look, there's a, there's a whole lot happening with Twitter, and it, it really is developing, I mean, in a way, minute by minute since last Thursday when Musk kind of dramatically walked into Twitter headquarters and he officially uh, took over, immediately got rid of uh, a number of top executives, uh, including the CEO, Parag Aguaro, who had only been in the job for 11 months, and that's significant because uh, it's possible that uh, the former CEO is going to get $40 million out of this deal as part of his contract, that if he was let go in under a year, <clears throat> he would get $40, million, you know, 40 or so million dollars out of it. Uh, Musk, of course, is fighting that and uh, is going to take that to court. There's also reports of massive layoffs coming at Twitter. We saw last week uh, and over the weekend, people, uh, employees at Twitter were told to print out copies of the code they've written over the past uh, 30 to 60 days. And then very quickly, they were told, don't print anything out. Go to you know the 10th floor of the building and shred anything you've printed. Uh, but it shows that, you know, at the same time, Musk is bringing in engineers from his one of his other companies, Tesla, uh, as well as a number of venture capitalists and affiliated people um, from places like Y Combinator, uh, Andresine Horowitz, and uh, other companies to revisit, you know, basically Twitter's entire model. Uh, these kind of consultants, I think it's very telling what uh, that means for the future of uh, and many employees at Twitter. Uh, just we learned last night that Twitter employees who have not been laid off yet have been told, go write a new feature so you have something and, and send it directly to Musk so that you have something to show him and maybe that'll help you keep your job. But on the question of hate speech, yes, uh, the use of the N-word rose immediately after Elon took over. Um, Also, as you mentioned, uh, slurs uh, against LGBTQ people, against Jewish people, I mean, you name it. 
Uh, and I think it's significant, you know, to to mention that a lot of people were also talking about, you know, bring back Kanye. Of course, Kanye West's account is still active. He, he could tweet if he wanted to, but he also just bought Parler, which I think is an interesting side note. Parler being a, you know, far right um you know, social network uh, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention recently, but certainly uh, in the past, you know, has. And we'll see, you know, what that exactly means. But I think just an interesting side note there, uh, I think Kanye bought Parler and it's gotten very little uh, attention. So in terms of the hate speech, it's not that Musk came in and turned off some kind of filter. It's that this is what his followers and supporters believe and want. Musk has declared himself a free speech absolutist. He has said that, you know, he believes that all speech has a place. Uh, at the same time, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth and put out an open letter to Twitter advertisers saying that, you know, obviously he doesn't want, uh, he doesn't want anything to happen that would, you know, damage the relationship that the advertisers have with Twitter. That doesn't seem to be going over very well. I saw a report last night that uh, GE and other major advertisers are reconsidering their relationship with Twitter, which I think is an interesting euphemism for probably going to pull their money out. So there's a whole lot going on there. But I think the hate speech question, again, is so significant because, again, he didn't just you know change something in the algorithm. It was the people who are supporting him, who are these so-called free speech warriors, who are using these slurs, who are harassing people at, on Twitter, you know, anyone who mentions Elon Musk, if you mention him, you know, these people will search his name and just gang up on anyone who's critical of him or boost people who are supporting him. Um, and I think that's that's really significant. In a, in a way, I, I see Elon Musk as almost an equivalent of Donald Trump, in a sense, um, in terms of the audience that he is, you know, he's gaining um, and that, that he has and kind of the political outlook uh, and approach that his supporters have. I mean, it's very clear that, you know, Donald Trump inspired and emboldened the worst of, of the racist and, and, you know, bigoted people. Uh, and I think we're seeing Elon Musk do something very, very similar right now. And we should also mention, by the way, Musk, um, on, I believe it was Friday or Saturday, uh, tweeted out and then deleted um, a, in a, a, a right-wing news site that is known for just baseless conjecture, um, talking about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, uh, suggesting that uh, it was, you know, the, the attacker was a, uh, you know, a, a gay lover or something like that instead of, you know, uh, what we know now from the indictment uh, and the charges, you know, somebody who really wanted to take out Pelosi. You know, a couple of things, Chris. It, it, it is wild to me that, you know, uh, Musk is uh, apparently, I guess he's going to hold up the, the payout for the CEOs that he uh, fired. And, and I guess that's a good thing. I, I'm not, you know, sad about that. Obviously, uh, Musk's really terrible work model, because uh, we've talked about the, the horrific conditions in his Tesla factory, several of them before. And if people didn't know how terrible a boss uh, Elon Musk was from the people who have sued him, uh, who worked for him at Tesla, now I think they really do see that he's a really horrible, horrible human being. But something he did that I think is not getting a lot of attention that we do need to pay more attention to is that he took 
uh, uh, Twitter private. And what does that mean in, in terms of uh, the, the corporate relationships? Like you said, GE is con- reconsidering their relationship with Twitter uh, now that all of the, the racist and, and homophobic and transphobic uh, vitriol uh, is, you know, completely fine and and welcome on Twitter. But what does that mean, taking Twitter private um, in in the context of actual surveillance and Twitter becoming more of a breeding ground for the surveillance state and there really being no paper trail for us to find out what they're doing? That's such a a really, really good question. I mean, Twitter will be under far less regulation uh, in terms of what it has to Uh, put out there as a private company. One thing to note is that the board of directors has been dismissed. That was part of the deal, Um, uh, you know, in terms of Elon purchasing it, he will likely create his own board full of people who support him and people who agree, of course, with, you know, his model and his dreams for Twitter. But yeah, there's going to be a lot less regulation around what it is they have to release and what they have to put out there, uh, you know, with, with Twitter's, um, you know, and surveillance. I mean, I think that, you know, once the chaos kind of dies down and whether that's, you know, once advertisers and, and investors tell Elon to, to calm down, which I think is less likely, or, you know, the news cycle kind of moves on from this, you know, I, I can only imagine that, uh, at the, you know, while this is all happening, the, the federal government, you know, and the various intelligence and law enforcement agencies are re- reevaluating their plans on how to interact with Twitter. We know that, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these other, you know, companies, they have policies of working very closely with law enforcement, whether it's to, you know, gather information uh, on users or to, you know, uh, have specific portals, places that law enforcement can go for takedown requests if they want something removed from the site. Um, You know, Elon Musk is a, you know, for all of his his speech and his, his the, just the chaos that he creates, you know, we should mention this, that this morning, uh, early Tuesday morning, his, one of his other, other companies, SpaceX launched a secret mission in conjunction with us space force. So this is not a guy who's, you know, anti-government or anti-state in any way. He's working very closely with the U S government. Uh, and I think, you know, that could be a whole topic, uh, you know, of its own is, is how this private company is launching space force, uh, you know, military something. We don't know what it is. Uh, very secretive, you know, uh, on their own hardware. Definitely. And uh, switching gears here some, Chris, uh, there's a very interesting development from a U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, who has recently released new details about the surveillance of Portland demonstrators by the Department of Homeland Security during the George Floyd rebellion of 2020. And so uh, what's going on here and what has Senator Wyden revealed? Yeah, I also uh, had a great conversation about this yesterday with our friends uh, Michelle Woody and John Kiriakou on political misfits. Uh, and, you know, it's really, really, I think this is just not getting the attention that it deserves, unfortunately, partially because, you know, the media doesn't want to talk about this, uh, but also, you know, because of the, you know, the news about Twitter and, and then, of course, everything else happening in the world. But, you know, 
Portland was one of the hotbeds of protest. I mean, night after night for weeks, you know, for a couple months during the uprising against racism in summer of 2020, you know, when we saw, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the country coming out to protest police terror and racism. And Ron Wyden, um, you know, of Oregon has put out a, an unredacted version of a Department of Homeland Security report, uh, which has some very, very interesting information about what it is that DHS was doing. Uh, there was a, um, this is particularly around I and A, which is intelligence and uh, analysis uh department or sub-department within DHS. Two things that really stood out to me. Uh, first is that um, the DHS, the acting DHS secretary and acting DHS deputy secretary, that's Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, actually wanted uh, DHS to create OBRs, or what's known as baseball cards, basically a one-page fact sheet, not just on people who were arrested or you know, who were suspected or arrested for a violent crime, you know, so-called violent crime, um, but also just on anyone who went to a protest. So literally, if you were just standing in a crowd, you went to a protest, uh, they wanted, and this is, you know, these are Trump appointees, they wanted a fact sheet on literally everyone who went to a protest in Portland over the course of these few months. They thought that they were going to, you know, track down who was funding these protests. And, you know, I, I think it's so important to say that while there were many organizations who were involved in these protests and leading them and building them and helping to coordinate them, they would not have been significant without the masses of people coming out, uh, you know, into the streets, you know, whether they were with an organization or not. These protests were built on a mass movement. And I think that's so significant, you know, to understand. But DHS thought that they were going to, you know, track down like the CEO of Antifa or something like that. Right. And, and you know, uh, figure out, who you know, that there was some individual or small group, you know, funding the protests. Portland, of course, was one of the, you know, main places that uh, DHS had their so, you know, their secret police and that there was just a lot of repression from federal law enforcement um, on the ground in Portland. Another really interesting thing that came out of, of this is that the Department of Homeland Security's Federal Protective Service instructed I&A, Intelligence and, and, and Analysis, to, quote, exploit devices seized from protesters by the Federal Protective Services. And they also said uh, that they offered that service to the local police, the Portland PD. Now, at the same time, the Portland Police Department had been ordered by a city, uh, the city government, city, I, I don't know if it's a council or I forget the exact form of government they have, but uh, they had a resolution to not work with federal police uh, or federal law enforcement. And so uh, DHS says that there were no phones actually exploited, but at the same time, uh, DHS also tried to have intelligence and analysis um, you know, get into the phones of anyone who was arrested, which is why I always say, you know, if you're arrested and your phone is taken from you for more than a minute or two at a protest, you know, you need to be really suspicious of, you know, whether or not it's been infected with something or whether or not the police have actually, you know, cloned your phone and, tr and are trying to get into it and get information out of it. 
Yeah, and of course, this, you know, continues to confirm that, you know, even though uh, Wyden released these uh, documents uh, to expose uh, the Trump administration's appointees at DHS who were, you know, spreading these conspiracy theories and, you know, trying to paint protesters as violent Antifa anarchist inspired, uh, uh, you know, terrorists with with absolutely no evidence. The fact is that not everyone at DHS was appointed by Trump. There are plenty of uh, employees who went along with this, Chris, who have been there under uh, the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, and is still there under the Biden administration. So, I mean, what has been done in the release, uh, the wake of the release of this report to address uh, this violation of people's privacy and civil rights? Well, so far, nothing of note has been done. Um, This report has gone really unnoticed by most of the media. Uh, You know, I think in in some ways, you know, Ron Wyden, uh, you know, releasing this is not a surprise. He often calls for, you know, oversight um, of, you know, the intelligence and surveillance uh, agencies, you know, in the U.S. government. But it hasn't gotten the attention that it, it that it really deserves. And, you know, certainly I think you're absolutely correct that uh, many of the people involved are still at DHS, you know, employees, managers, high, you know, higher ups, you know, just because it was Ken Cuccinelli and Chad Wolf who were, you know, making a lot of these calls doesn't mean that, you know, there weren't others who were, uh, you know, trying to, you know, who were uh, implementing them. Um, and in some of these instances, there were actually, you know, just, analysts on the ground who were saying, hey, we should, you know, expand our search terms here without any official, you know, justification for it. They just thought that they could get more information to give to the bosses if they expanded their search terms and and the things that they were trying to analyze. So, yeah, this is a systemic problem. This is not just a, a Trump problem or Trump appointee problem. I mean, the entire existence of the Department of Homeland Security, and let's keep in mind, it's only about 20 or a little less than 20 years old at this point, has been about, you know, repressing people in the United States, whether it's, uh, you know, targeting specific groups like Muslims, uh, immigrants, or, you know, targeting protest. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. And as always, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that isn't the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. 
That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday, and we're streaming live right now for your viewing pleasure on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And a uh, bit of bad news at the top of the hour today. Uh, Atlanta rapper Kershnick Kari Ball, otherwise known as Takeoff, one third of the popular group Migos, was shot and killed uh, at a private party earlier today in Houston, Texas. This was confirmed by a representative to the Associated Press. There's been an uh, outpouring of uh, condolences and sadness from uh, uh, the hip hop community following this uh, definitely felt unexpected. And it, it actually comes not that long after a uh, Philly rapper PNB Rock was uh, shot and killed in a restaurant in Los Angeles, California. So hip hop really hurting right now. Rest in peace to them both. Also, uh, at the top of the hour, 42-year-old David DePape, who is the man accused of attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer, told police that he wanted to take uh, the House Speaker hostage and, quote, break her kneecaps uh, in order to show other Congress members that there were, quote, consequences to actions. Uh, according to a federal complaint, officials say that uh, the 42-year-old DePape was carrying zip ties, tape, and rope in a backpack when he broke into the Pelosi's home in San Francisco early this past Friday morning where he went upstairs and found Paul Pelosi sleeping, where he then demanded to talk to Nancy. And uh, following this, of course, is when the attack happened. According to Pelosi and her family, her husband underwent surgery for a fractured skull along with other injuries suffered during the attack and said that he was making, quote, steady progress on what will be a long recovery process. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Jamal Thomas, co-host of Fault Lines, which you can hear from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. Jamal, thanks so much for joining us. What's going on, man? How you doing today? Everything's cool, man. Everything's cool. And you know, Jamal, we had you on the show just yesterday 
to discuss the results of the Brazilian election that saw the narrow victory of Lula da Silva over the far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And you noted uh, uh, during that interview that uh, we haven't yet heard anything from Bolsonaro one way or the other. Uh, That is still the case as we speak right now. But what we have seen is images and videos of uh, Bolsonaro uh, supporters uh, uh, shutting down the airport, flights having to be canceled, uh, engaging uh, in other sorts of uh, street violence. And so uh, you're there in Sao Paulo uh, reporting, uh, Jamal. And so I'm just wondering uh, what you've been seeing and what you're making of these latest developments. Well, I'm actually in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. Rio de Janeiro. But that's okay. I'm still in Brazil. Um, it's, it's pretty wild, actually, when you think about it. All things being equal, Bolsonaro is supposed to speak anytime now. And his communication minister has basically come out and saying that he's not going to contest the results of the election. Um, right here. Communication minister Fabio Ferra told Reuters that Bolsonaro was expected to meet with the Supreme Court justices ahead of the speech. He's expected to make an official statement on today, any moment, um, but he will not contest the results of the election. Now, the catch is you have all of these people who are out there supporting. And the cops who are backing Bolsonaro for the most part, there's a question of whether they're actually doing the job to remove it. The Supreme Court, or let's say the person who was in charge of the electoral Supreme Court, Alexander de Mortis, basically put out a statement saying he ordered the federal police to go out there and clear those protesters, and I'm paraphrasing, by any means necessary, basically by all means, get rid of those protests. Now, there are pictures and there are images of some of the police basically backing the protesters. And so, Morris basically made the point of saying the highway police wasn't responding and wasn't necessarily doing their jobs. And he ordered, or he basically threatened, they're going to charge the truckers $20,000 an hour for as long as they stay out there. He, on top of that, made the point of saying he was going to charge the head of the police, um, a gentleman named, well, I don't know if he's a gentleman, but um, the person named Director General of the Federal Highway Police, Silvini Vasquez, that he would have him arrested, that he would also charge him $20,000 if he doesn't necessarily get those protesters out of there. Uh, Mortis made a statement saying that the Federal Highway Police are not listening to him, meaning they're basically blowing off the order. And he ordered the state police to get involved in order to remove the protest. Now, if you can think about it, that is super weird. The Federal Highway Police, supposedly, and I don't necessarily know if this is all the way through, but definitely supposedly a section of these guys who basically were back in Bolsonaro, from the standpoint of the judge and the court, is not listening to what the judge was saying. Now, from the standpoint of the police, the police put out a statement saying, right here, they made a point of saying they removed, according to the Federal Highway Police on Tuesday morning, they were blocking highways partially or fully in more than 200 locations as part of demonstrations spread to 21 of 27 Brazilian states. Now, they announced that they removed 306 blockages um, or that 306 blockages has gone up and they removed 200 or cleared 200 locations. But still, there are 267 active blockades that are in place. Now, those blockades are affecting flights. Like you mentioned before, there were, what, 20-something, if not more, flights that were basically shut down. You have food and gas that can't get from point A to point B. And the effect of this, right here, they've caused shortages of fuel in some parts of the country. In the northern state of Santa Clarina, authorities said 95% of the gas stations in Joinville, the capital, were out of fuel. Um, you have 
sharp rise in fuel prices in other parts of the country. There's issue with food getting from point A to point B. You even have situations where like eggs that are used to create vaccines, again, potentially spoiling, not allowing those things to get from point A to point B because of the protests. And so right now, those protests are still going. And even though there seem to be some efforts by state police in order to try to remove the protests, particularly in San Paulo, the governor of San Paulo basically came out and again, $20,000 in funds and pushing the police out there to remove it. In some cases, you have tear gas uh, being used or uh, dispersed in order to try to disperse the crowds. Right now, they're still going. And those things are having a detrimental effect. Now, the cops have come out. And the police union is basically saying, look, this is not our fault. They said, quote, the posture of the current president of the Republic, I hear Bolsonaro, and maintaining silence and not recognizing the results of the polls, have made it difficult to pacify the country, encouraging some of his followers to adopt blockade actions on Brazilian roads. They're basically saying, look, this is not our fault. We're trying to clear these protests. But all things would equal, the president himself, because he hasn't said anything, is basically inflaming the crowd with his silence. And keep in mind, some of these truckers are basically screaming that Bolsonaro should basically ignore the election results and overthrow the country, which... At this point, he can't do it. I have, I have no belief that he has power to do that at this point. I mean, the people who are backing Bolsonaro themselves have come out. Well, some of them have been trying to push him to basically concede. You have the person in the lower house, uh, uh, trying to find the person's name, that basically came out and said, look, it's time to go over. Many of his allies, even, in political space, have basically come out and recognized Lula as being the person in charge and basically the person who won the race. Close political allies, including Chief of Staff, Sierra Nigera, and Vice President Hamilton, uh, I think this is Mura, have begun already making contact with Lula's camp meeting. People in Bolsonaro's camp have already started working with the transition team for Lula. Speaker of the lower house of Congress calls for Bolsonaro government to basically respect the results of the election. So in real terms, in a political sense, Bolsonaro is isolated. All of the world leaders have basically congratulated him. The South American leaders were jubilant <laughs> that he got in office. Putin sent him congratulations. Maduro sent him congratulations. Um, all of the left-wing governments in South America have sent him congratulations. Joe Biden has sent him congratulations, many of them making the point of free, fair election, which is somewhat of a hint to Bolsonaro's, this idea of fraud. So I don't know where Bolsonaro would get any kind of political credibility, or for that matter, any political backing if he did come out trying to do anything other than at the very least accept the results. And up to this point, we're waiting on a statement. The statement is supposed to come in any time now, but ideally, at the very least, coming out as a communications manager or communications team, he's not necessarily going to contest the results. That doesn't mean he concedes, though. That's the interesting part. And if he does come out, depending upon what he says, what effect is that going to have basically on the truckers and the people who are out there protesting? Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, you know, Jim Merlin, I think that's the question I have about the fact that Bolsonaro has not issued a statement. Now, you know, of course, we can't peer into the man's mind, but we all know that the United right. States government certainly didn't want Lula uh, to win. And now that he has by over more than a million votes, it, do you think it's possible that this is some type of weird in-game political gambit that Bolsonaro is playing to set the stage, he thinks, maybe, uh, to say, look at all of the political unrest that's going on in this country, this election, uh, whether he concedes and, and admits that it was a free and fair election or not, look at the chaos this election has wrought. Um, you, United States, we need your help. Come in and help us. Well, what do, what do you think about that? 
I don't think, I mean, look, uh, yes, I'm glad you said that. So two parts. The first part is it is very possible that Balls and Arrow didn't say anything in the beginning because you wanted to see what happens. Like, you scream fraud for the entire year. On top of that, you scream only God can take me out of this office. Like, God himself or herself or whatever self has to come out. This kind of, um, you know, uh, incorporeal force is going to somehow drag me out of office. Not so much. Incorporeal force in the Supreme Court, or for that matter, the Electoral Supreme Court, is going to drag you out of office. I do think in the beginning, you might have waited to see what happens. Is there going to be unrest? Is there going to be riots in the streets? Are my supporters going to burn stuff down? It could have been that. But at this point, he seems to have truckers, not necessarily an entirety of the population. And yeah, truckers have the ability to kind of, you know, gum up the works. I mean, they can stop things from going from point A to point B. They can shut down flights and everything else. How long can they do that? Those truckers have been asking for food, water, support, et cetera. But, I mean, this is hurting the rest of the population. Like, at the point where many people in the population are paying more for gas or not going to be able to get food or supermarkets going to go empty, will the public be okay with that? I mean, that's kind of the thing you have to deal with. And so I haven't seen this upswell from the standpoint of the public that are like, put balls in our back. I haven't seen that. What I have seen is, let's say, edifices of the society itself, be it cops, again, this may not necessarily be the entirety of the cops, but the head of the cops, Silvini Vasquez, he definitely was pro-Bolsonaro. He even came out, you know, vote Bolsonaro on social media. And keep in mind, the cops were the people that were basically blocking other people from trying to go and vote, set up roadblocks. Again, in spite the Supreme Court telling them not to do it, or I should say the Electoral Supreme Court telling them not to do it. At this point, the highest court, meaning the actual Supreme Court, not just the Electoral Court, has even come out and said, do your jobs. And it backed up Alexander de Morales, the head of the Supreme Court, from the standpoint of the Electoral Supreme Court. They basically backed him. I mean, it was an astonishing thing for the Supreme Court justices to basically meet and said, yeah, we're going to back Alexander Morales, head of the Electoral Supreme Court, and say, get those protesters out. And there was another report that came out where they made the point of saying, where is it? Right here. That they were doing this by omission. Right here. A majority of the court's justices backed Morales. And telling the people to basically leave and telling them to clear it, which accuses the highway police of, quote, omission and inertia, unquote. And again, failure to comply would mean its director could be fined up to $100,000, well, basically $20,000 an hour or removed from his office or even get thrown in prison. So they are basically threatening the director general of the federal highway police and telling him to do his job. Now, it is unclear what's going to happen with this. But I don't get the feeling that there's a sentiment of the U.S. needed to get involved. I don't get that feeling. In fact, the fact that Joe Biden basically came out and said this was a free, fair election kind of makes that point that much more stinging, considering that the U.S. was, at the very least, um, suspected to be involved in him being thrown in prison in the first place. So also, we have to think about it from the sense of what happened in the United States. You had a situation on January 6th. Well, I would say before January 6th. January 6th might have been the expression of that in a physical sense. But Donald Trump was trying to overthrow the election, what they call it, Green Bay Sweep. He had 100 senators that were willing to set themselves on fire um, for him in order to say, oh, this election is fraudulent and everything else. Bolsonaro doesn't have that. And if you're Joe Biden and you're in a country where the other guy kept saying you didn't win, you got won by fraud, how does it look for Joe Biden to do anything on this front other than saying, congratulations, Lula, that was a free fair election? Meaning Joe Biden is stuck by the politics of his own country to give Lula his accolades. I don't see it going that far. I mean, whatever happens in Brazil is going to happen in Brazil. But it seems the political space itself is very intent on get those people out. 
and even going so far as to saying we will throw the police chief in jail if he does not comply. It's fascinating. The catch, the real question though is, what does he do? I mean, to have the police blow off an order from the court is astonishing when you think about it. Imagine a court telling the cops to do something in the United States and the cops are like, yeah, man, we like the other guy. <laughs> we like the other guy. And then are you going to have state police fighting federal police? Like, how does that work out? At this point, I got to be honest, I'm completely unclear on how this resolves. And look, it may be a statement from Bolsonaro that resolves it. If Bolsonaro comes out and says, I can see, but, you know, you guys can go home now and everything else, they may go home. If he doesn't say that, what do those protesters do? And that's the question. From the cops' standpoint, to be fair to the cops, they say they are trying to clear the protests. And it did say they cleared, I think, 200 or 300 of them. Um, but again, there's still 260, if not more, that still remain. And up to this point, those people haven't gone anywhere, despite threatening with fines and potential arrests. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also we've been talking quite a bit, Jamal, about the international implications of uh, uh, another Lula presidency. Um, of course, uh, a lot of the meat of his platform was, you know, speaking to uh, poor and working class elements within Brazil, uh, promising uh, jobs, uh, better education, gender equality, housing for the homeless, things like this. Of course, Lula was a co-founder of the BRICS grouping, something that he has called to uh, expand. Uh, he also wants to uh, basically, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, strengthen regional integration throughout Latin America through these groups like UNASOR, MOCOSOR, excuse me, uh, MERCOSOR, and SELAC. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, he's even talked about creating a pan-Latin American currency that would uh, uh, enable the region to, quote, be freed of the dollar. I mean, he's also on record of, uh, uh, you know, pointing the finger of blame, at least to some extent, at uh, the U.S., EU, and NATO for uh, the war in Ukraine. And, of course, uh, this also is happening in the context of yet another uh, progressive government in the Latin America region. And so I'm just sort of wondering how you're considering it uh, from that point, given the broader relationship of forces in geopolitics at this moment. Man, I'm glad you asked the question. That is a fantastic question. Because I think that was the question that was on my mind from the very beginning with Lula One. What does it mean? Like, not just what does it mean, what does it mean in practice, in the real world uh, phenomena? I was talking to um, the head of the Sputnik Network um, here in Brazil. Because I was trying to make sure that my thinking was, he, he lives here. And so I was trying to make sure that my thinking on this stuff was in line. I was somewhat insecure in what I was thinking about it just because I'm a foreigner. here. But my thinking was pretty much in line with his own. All things being equal, what it means in practice is kind of hard to know. I mean, all th I would think, just by definition of what Lula was saying and what he represents, well, Cuba, Venezuela, Russia, China. And like you said, he started BRICS. And if you think about BRICS now, BRICS is basically a second economic order. The war in Ukraine has been, I would say, a watershed moment for the world in regards to this kind of hegemonic control. And it makes it clear that this is a multipolar world, not a singular um, world in regards to the way economics, or for that matter, power is um, acu um, accumulated. And so whereas Europe split its wrists for all intents and purposes, especially from an economic sense, Europe is, I would say, not on fire, but they're going to basically freeze to death. Well, BRICS ascendant. I mean, you have Iraq. I'm not Iraq, I'm sorry. You have Iran, you have Saudi Arabia, you have Turkey. All of these countries are basically trying to get involved with BRICS. You have three-fourths of the world that did not get involved in this nonsense with Ukraine. Europe and the United States are basically isolated itself. And like I said, Europe has damaged itself tremendously. They're de-industrialized, so you have many of the businesses that were either in Italy or, for that matter, Germany, basically leading 
because they can't afford the gas bill or the energy bill in order to run their businesses. Those that can't leave are basically closed. You have money, um, the cost of energy, the cost of food. All of those things have dramatically increased. The dollar or the, let's say the pound for the matter, the euro has fallen to the floor. And if you're thinking about a currency as the strength of a nation, what does that mean for Europe? And what does that mean for Britain? And in context of that, when you're thinking of those countries that are basically on the decline, well, what is BRICS? BRICS at this point is basically a second economic order. You have Turkey and Saudi Arabia, two countries that were basically allies of the United States that are now trying to get into an organization that is basically run by Russia and China. And so when you look at it, you get this organization that seems to be ascendant. And so if he's trying to expand this, well, he's the guy to do it, right? He's the one who basically helps our BRICS. He has no issue working with Cuba. He has no issue working with Venezuela. He has no issue with closer ties to Russia and China. And as already said, he's already on some level blamed the U.S. and NATO for getting involved in Ukraine. So he is not even in this context of a Patsy nation in this regard. He puts you in the mind of Rafael Carrera. If you remember, Carrera, head of Ecuador, basically kept General Assange safe. Now, yes, they tried to go after him after the new Patsy came in, Morales, I believe, came in and basically was just following whatever the United States was basically turned on Ecuador into basically another vassal state. But you have certain people and certain leaders who are in Latin America who are basically strong on this notion of national independence. Lula is one of those people. So yeah, I imagine a closer organization with these various countries, including Cuba and Venezuela. But again, it's hard to know what that looks like in practice, which is the catch. Like, what does it mean from the standpoint of the rainforest? So what does it mean from the standpoint of trying to create a pan uh, or South American currency? that these guys can use, or for that matter, a union in order to rival the European Union. It's a great idea. Can you do it? That's the question. Like, it, it's a fact. Look, I am one of those people that is overjoyed with Lula taking office. And it seems if you look at the leaders who are sending him accolades and sending him, you know, congratulations and everything else, it seems that many of the Latin American leaders or South American leaders are over the moon. Petrov, um, the one I believe, um, what is it? Uh, ah, it's, it's leaving me right now. Um, Colombia. His congratulations. Colombia, thank you. I yeah. wanted to say Colombia, but I wasn't sure. Um, Colombia sends his congratulations. You get Maduro sending his congratulations. Um, Cuba sending their congratulations. Like all of these groups are basically saying congratulations. I strongly suspect that all of them believe that they're going to be able to work closer together. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, I don't get the feeling that these guys are necessarily going to be a vassal state. Yeah, real quick, uh, we're going to go to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Jamal Thomas. And Jamal, we've been talking uh, today about the uh, uh, the ongoing aftermath of this weekend's election in Brazil. And, you know, sticking with uh, this this topic, if you will, 
of geopolitics, I wanted to, to shift gears and focus rather to the United States. Uh, there's definitely some relevance there to the earlier part of our uh, conversation. I know you recently uh, published a video on your uh, uh, YouTube channel entitled Joe Biden has led this country and world to brink of nuclear war 20 seconds to midnight. And I, I tend to agree that things are just that uh, dangerous in this moment. I mean, we, we uh, talk about this almost daily here on the show, and I think that it's necessary because I would argue the overwhelming majority of people in the United States and even perhaps the West don't quite grasp uh, uh, the levity of uh, uh, this uh, 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 rapidly escalating uh, proxy war in Ukraine. And as the day goes by, the threat of uh, that nuclear war, I feel, becomes uh, closer <clears throat> and closer. And so I'm just sort of generally wondering what you make of where things stand uh, with this war in Ukraine. Um, as of now, Jamal, I mean, it seems pretty clear that the U.S. NATO forces don't intend on, uh, uh, you know, rolling back anytime soon. Uh, certainly the, the Russian government uh, digging in their heels as well. And it just seems that we're just really just flying up uh, the ladder of escalation here. And while I don't think uh, uh, things are impossible at this point, I think it is pretty clear that they're uh, uh, quite difficult. And uh, uh, as such, I think it's uh, more than worth a sort of serious consideration, particularly in terms of what we can do to, to try to, to stop this momentum. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's astonishing when you think about it. I mean, nobody told or forced NATO to expand. NATO, when the when Soviet Union fell, there was proclamations, we will not expand one inch. We would not take advantage of the Soviet Union. And they did all of it. They didn't expand one inch. They expanded to the border. Then the U.S. was instrumental in overthrowing the government of Ukraine. The U.S. blew off, or let's say Ukraine blew off the Minsk agreements. And the president, Poroshenko, had even made the point of saying, well, we never really were going to fulfill the Minsk agreements. We just needed time in order to get our military in line. And so the U.S. knocks over the democratically elected governor of Ukraine, Yukashenko, uh, was in charge of that government. He was elected by the left, or let's say by the Eastern um, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, or for that matter, ethnic Russian Ukrainians, and by the West. Meaning a democratically elected government was basically overthrown by the U.S. because they didn't necessarily like the fact that Yukashenko wouldn't sign on to the European Union's deal. Basically, they wanted to be closer um, to Russia because Russia was the better deal for him. They overthrew the government because of that. Okay, fair enough. The Minsk Agreements comes up as a way of dealing with that. The Minsk Agreements would have allowed um, those regions, Donetsk, Lugansk, to still be under the auspices of Ukraine, even though they would have been semi-autonomous. But that wasn't good enough. So the point where the government fell, you had those regions basically saying, we don't want to be a part of a Russophobic government. Basically, we don't want to be a part of a government that hates our guts. And so they become somewhat independent. For eight years, the Ukrainian military went on a campaign of killing ethnic Russian Ukrainians. The West didn't care, didn't say anything about it, didn't even accept it, the fact that, meaning they acted as if ethnic Russian Ukrainians, for whatever particular reason, wasn't Ukrainians. Russia didn't necessarily get involved during that period. Well, at the point where it looked like the Ukrainian military was going to basically rush those regions, Russia gets involved. Everybody screams at that point, oh my God, Russia invaded the country. The wild part about this is you had the William Burns, director of the CIA, back in 2008, wrote a memo called Nyet Means Nyet. And he made the point of saying if the United States, or for that matter, NATO, keeps creating 
fractures within the context of the government, there will be a civil war that Russia would have to get involved in. And the real quote in that is Russia doesn't want to do that. Now, when all of this happened, none of them accepted that, meaning none of them accepted this notion of security guarantees for Russia or Russia would have security concerns about a Russophobic government literally on its border. Now, from my standpoint, if you were, if it was the United States, and let's say Russia knocked over Mexico and put in material, weapons, and have those weapons pointed at the United States, had all sorts of NGOs and everything else trying to make inroads, would the United States accept that premise? And the answer, of course, is no. The United States would not accept the premise. They would not scream, well, Mexico is an independent nation. Mexico can have missiles and weapons aimed and pointed at us. They can have their military ready to invade Texas. None of us would accept that. We've seen that in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the United States was willing to end the world to keep those missiles out of Cuba. Um, you know, not to mention Khrushchev had already gave the order to basically fire those missiles if, the, if they were attacked. My point is, we, in the exact same situation, we ignore the fact that Russia has security concerns. We ignore the fact that they're basically being surrounded by NATO and Ukraine is being used as the tip of the spear in order to drag the country into larger conflict. Okay, so now, under this premise, Russia goes in, Russia liberates, what, 20% of the territory. Putin does what he said he's going to do. We're going to liberate Donbass region. Okay. The United States decides and NATO decides to put all the weapons in the world into Ukraine, not to mention having this economic war that all of them thought was such a great idea. Well, the economic war is not coming to good ends. Russia has money hand over fist. The ruble is ascendant, whereas European economies are basically taking a dramatic hit. Nevertheless, they still decided we're going to keep this boat rolling. Joe Biden has decided to move missiles into regions that are closer to Russia. And all of this nuclear missile talk, and you have to wonder why is Joe Biden screaming about nuclear weapons? Russia, with an expeditionary force, was able, working with the dumbass republics, were able to take 20% of that territory, or let's say liberate 20% of that territory. Why would they need to go from an expeditionary force to missiles or nuclear missiles? It makes no sense. So the question becomes, why is Joe Biden creating this context, this framework of nuclear weapons and everything else? And you have to wonder if they're doing this under this notion that Ukraine may create a dirty bomb or something to that effect. And that's what Russia is saying. Now, I take that as a credible threat. I don't necessarily think they're saying that to say it. The Ukrainian government were launching missiles at the Zabrosia nuclear power plant. Meaning, why are they doing that if not to create some kind of, let's say, um, dirty bomb or some kind of nuclear thing? And you have to wonder, considering everything that has happened through this conflict, when Zaporozhye was attacked, oh, Russia is attacking a power plant. Okay, why would they do that considering they basically are holding the power plant? Or when you had the Azov Battalion members that were basically, um, there was a bombing of the Azov Battalion members that were in the Russian um, camp. Well, again, they screamed, Russia bombed its own people. Why <laughs> Russia bomb its own people? They could take those guys out and put a bullet in them. Why would they need to bomb their own people in order to hurt themselves? Even Gazprom or even Nord Stream 2, when that was bombed, what was their response? Russia bombed its own pipeline. Russia had complete access and control to the pipeline itself, meaning they could cut the gas off or cut the gas on. It was up to them. They didn't necessarily need to bomb it. It makes no sense. The point that I'm making here, in every situation that basically takes place, the first response is Russia did it. Russia, for whatever reason, continues to bomb themselves. So if you think about something happening, an event, what would they say? 
Now, the United States went into Iraq under this idea of weapons of mass destruction. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It didn't stop the United States from going in and getting a man in Iraq is killed, not to mention leading to other escapades. So if you have a situation where the Ukrainian government is losing, losing, full-throated losing, Russia has solidified its gains by basically making that territory part of Russia in and of itself with, what, 100,000, 300,000 people coming in in order to assist to solidify their gains. Yes, Russia could pretty much win every battle, but they didn't necessarily have enough force to go in and basically continue making their gains while continuously protecting those areas. Well, what about now? I mean, if they were able to do this with a limited expeditionary force, being soft, by the way, when they went in, they didn't hit power centers, they didn't hit infrastructure, didn't do any of that stuff. They're doing that stuff now because at this point, the war is basically escalating. What is NATO going to do is the question. And up to this point, they still seem to be riding this boat. And it's very possible that Joe Biden is trying to set a framework, a context by which he could basically put those troops in. Screaming, what do they call them? Screaming eagles. Um, the one here in the first airborne are sitting in Romania now. And my first question was, why are they there? I mean, are they there for something to take place and Joe Biden immediately scream right there? Russia did that, even though Russia would have no reason to do that, considering they're basically um, consolidating their gains. And would that be enough reason and pretext for, let's say, that airborne to go in? to one of those regions, whether it be Odessa or whether it be some region in the West, where at that point it becomes, are you going to attack American troops? Meaning you have a Ukrainian government that clearly doesn't have the capacity to basically win this. They're losing it full-throatedly, and they're throwing away, what, 100,000 men, if not more at this point? They clearly lose it. They clearly couldn't be an expeditionary force. Is NATO going to back off? Or is NATO going to come up with some kind of pretext that they can basically blame Russia for to create a justification to go into various regions of the country? And if that's in a Russian-speaking region, what does that mean? Like, I, I don't think people fully grasp the way that the United States uses pretext and framing in order to come up with a justification to basically take certain action. And to put U.S. troops in any part of Ukraine would be radically provocative, radically so. Not to mention, Biden is moving his missile systems closer and moving it up, meaning this is taking place this year, not necessarily in 2023. People need to reconcile how disastrous this is. When Putin was talking about nuclear weapons, he was talking about it in the capacity of defending Russia, something that the United States itself would say. Meaning, if we are under threat and we believe that threat is existential, we will be use, willing to use nuclear weapons in order to basically deal with that. That's any country that has nuclear weapons. So it's not astonishing that Putin basically made this comment in defense of Russia. And he's making that comment because he realized that NATO is close, meaning on their border, and they're basically using Ukraine as a proxy, and not just using Ukraine as a proxy. Many of the things that are taking place where Ukraine are making attacks are being backed, watched, supported, given logistics from the U.S., and for that matter, from the U.K., meaning we are instrumentally involved in that conflict. And again, if anything takes off, where Biden screams, this is escalatory, we now got to get involved, that potentially is the end of the world. I mean, we really, like, I'm not saying that in a hyper hyperbolic sense, but think about what they're taking place. I mean, the United States changed its defense posture to a first strike posture. I mean, they're basically screaming out, well, in 2030, we're going to be confronted with China and Russia. And these two countries are so powerful. So we need to consider a first strike, even going so far as to talk about with our allies, even for conventional weapons. This is astonishingly bad. I mean, Joe, Joe Biden didn't need to do any of this. Keep in mind, 
people in rational minds could have said, okay, Russia has security concerns. We need to have that talk about security concerns. We need to rationally come to some kind of, they didn't do that. They screamed, Russia has no security concerns. Putin is a bad man. We're not going to talk about this and just basically use Ukraine as a proxy. Well, at this point, Ukraine is lost. NATO has, has to make a choice. How far are they willing to go in this conflict? From a hegemonic control sense, they don't seem to want to let it go. And they don't seem to want to recognize that this is a uni- no longer a unipolar world. This is, it's, we are at the brink of oblivion. And Joe Biden is stupid enough to keep us going in this particular direction. And at this point, I have no idea how far he's willing to go. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. It's definitely sort of a uh, a, a frightening notion. And I agree. There seems to be some kind of uh, tug of war or push and pull in some quarters about, you know, just how this will go. I mean, I agree. Obviously, uh, the ruling class uh, in this country does want to, uh, you know, continue the uh, uh, furnishing of aid and continuing basically uh, to escalate this conflict. And if they realize that uh, there's this uh, uh, potential for open nuclear conflict, which I'm sure they are, it doesn't seem to concern them that much. And since it doesn't really concern them, that's reflected, I think, in a lot of the coverage in the mainstream media, which in turn reflects in a lot of the popular consciousness in the United United States, which is why I've been saying it really feels like a lot of people in this country are just kind of whistling past the graveyard, not realizing the gravity of the moment. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Jamal Thomas is here. And we've got a caller on the line. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, you guys are doing a yeoman's job. Um, I'd like to start. Uh, I, the, I don't know if it's a fortune, but yeah, I, I will say this, because my first experience in understanding the tentacles of U.S. imperialism uh, took place about over 30 years ago. I was at a meeting and I had a, a, a layover or I was coming back from a meeting I, and I was in Las Vegas and uh, I ran into James Carville. Uh, and it was just the two of us uh, at a bar and uh, kind of had a conversation and uh, some other folk tended to come over and, and join us in the, in the conversation. And he was stopping, uh, for, or he was had a layover, much like me. And uh, we were at uh, MGM Grand, and he was coming back from the working an election in Brazil. And uh, we can all surmise that that election that he was working was not a person that was uh, anywhere closely related to a person like uh, Lula. So uh, I, I, I thought that that was uh, just, a, it was a, an incident that I will never forget. 
uh, and it, ha- it put things in perspective as far as what we perceive to be the Democratic Party of good versus evil. And far too many folk on the left have this misconception. But I would like to ask your guests a kind of a philosophical question, and and I just wanted to applaud you, uh, uh, Sean, because a couple of weeks ago you had uh, the likes of James Counts early on, and he kind of referred to Putin as this evil person, this evil dictator, and you you kind of corrected him, and uh, you know they're the likes of, of of William Fletcher, and and so in the the whole context of geopolitical politics, and particularly the people that listen to the show uh, from the concerned and, I will say, honest left, uh, they, many of these same people, I, I saw a post by Glenn Greenwald saying that the, that, that the U.S. establishment wants or wanted someone like Lula because of his geopolitical role and, and how he could be manipulated. So my point is that, you know, there are, as someone so aptly described, there are many people on the left that are right wing. And the likes of Ajamu Baraka, I think, are the true left that, that, that you guys often have on this, on this program. So I would like, from the context of geopolitical politics, what does that mean, or what can we glean, and where can we move forward for us? And uh, I, I hope I'm clear, but uh, I just hope that uh, you can kind of expand on that on, on that philosophical question because I think it's very important for us to understand, particularly as it comes as this whole idea of full blue, no matter who that I find too many. Uh, many African-Americans fall into that trap. So thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. And I'll take your response off the air. Well, thank you for calling in, Mo. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Just a quick update. I'm seeing some reporting now that Bolsonaro is actually uh, speaking right now. Just wanted to note that. Uh, But to, to, to answer your question, Mo, I mean, first of all, without question, there are people on uh, the left uh, in this country who are uh, fundamentally right wing. They may be forward thinking on domestic policies, but when it comes to international issues and when it comes to critiquing uh, uh, imperialism, they are often on the same side of the U.S. State Department. They just take extra steps to get there so that they can continue to call themselves progressives or socialists or revolutionaries. And even some of them have the audacity to call themselves anti-imperialist. But uh, in reality, uh, you know, they, in my mind, a lot of them are anti-anti-imperialist. And mathematics makes clear the principle and result of uh, uh, two negatives. And so uh, I feel like, though, uh, when we when we discuss the sort of moment that we're in and the way we discuss geopolitics and the way that the Russian invasion backfooted the anti-imperialist movement, and it did. 
it I really think it did uh, for a moment precisely because Russia did, in fact, invade Ukraine. Now, you couple that with the fact that in this part of the world, you're not allowed to talk about anything that happened before February 24th, 2022, made that even more difficult. And so I think, though, precisely because of the intensity and the danger of uh, this moment that uh, we're really starting to see a lot of these movement elements uh, coalesce in the way and begin to not only speak out, but to organize. I feel like I should say a lot of these uh, same elements have been speaking out since the uh, uh, invasion itself through different platforms. And now that uh, seems like it's going to be taken to the street. And there's one piece in particular that I wanted to make people aware of that was just announced. It's this event that's going to be hosted by the People's Forum and the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. It's called The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, Negotiations Yes, Escalation No. And it's going to be at the People's Forum in New York City. And uh, I'm almost certain there's going to be a way to view online as well. And so far, there's a great list of speakers that is likely to expand. Uh, there's uh, Eugene Perrier, Medea Benjamin, Brian Becker, Claudia De La Cruz, Dr. Jill Stein, uh, Dr. Vijay Prashad, and Jeremy uh, uh, Corbin. And so it, th- it, this moment almost reminds me of a few years ago when, when, um, there was this when when the the, the last attempt, I should say, uh, of carrying out a coup in Venezuela, uh, there was a mass uh, protest, a mass demonstration here in Washington, D.C., to uh, to push back against that and to demand an end to the to Washington's attempt to uh, uh, carry out regime change against the democratically elected government in Venezuela using this fake fraud and puppet Juan Guaido, who, as we know now, has almost completely fallen out of favor within uh, uh, Venezuela's right wing opposition. But what am I saying? I'm saying that at that event, at that Venezuela event, there was a whole program full of people who likely had some uh, uh, political disagreements, not likely. I mean, they absolutely did in certain ways. But what was the important aspect? It was that everyone there understood how U.S. imperialism was operating in Venezuela, in Latin America, and that was uh, uh, enough to have this stance of unity and solidarity. And I think we may be approaching um, another uh, a similar moment uh, uh, with that as it pertains to the war in Ukraine. And I have to say, I disagree with um, your, your analysis of Mr. Early as not being on the honest left. I mean, I feel like a, a lifetime of his work uh, shows that, uh, to you know, to the contrary, particularly within uh, Latin America. Now, yes, I do disagree with his characterization of, uh, of Vladimir Putin, but we don't bring people on by any means necessary because we agree with them a uh, lockstep on every single thing. Mr. Early is someone who understands uh, better than I ever could about the importance of and the centrality of people's movements, of collective struggle, and of really building and strengthening uh, a radical democracy. That's why he is always reminding us that we can't get caught up in uh, uh, celebritized individuals, or people that we celebritize in our heads, whether it's Evo Morales or Fidel Castro or Nicolas Maduro or Daniel Ortega or, or any other uh, world leaders popular on the left that we can name. And so at the end of the day, we're in a period where uh, we need clarity. 
It needs serious clarity because there is so much confusion, misdirection, mischaracterization, half-truths, and outright lies being uh, 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 being pummeled. Our, our consciousness is being pummeled by this on a 24-7 basis, both by this government and its corporate-owned media platforms. You know what I mean? And so as we're acknowledging the, the, the gravity of this moment, we have to always, always, always keep our minds focused and be asking the questions. How are we going to organize to meet this moment and understanding who uh, uh, are the right partners to have in that moment and who perhaps are not the right partners. But Jackie Lukeman, I wanted to bring you in here. You know, this is, I think, the problem that we will always be confronted with on the left when there are crises, uh, really, of, of conscience that we have to engage in with people who are also on the left. And I think there are valid disagreements that we have with people and we can struggle with them on those disagreements in a principled way. Understanding, you know, I agree with you, Sean, that Mr. Early uh, has a very long and deep history of uh, understanding the progressive and left struggles of people around the world. And I think that when we're looking at folks who automatically call Putin, you know, a dictator and he's evil, I think we have to point out that there are valid criticisms of Vladimir Putin's policies, right? And that's fine. Because it's not like he's a nice guy as far as the, you know, being the leader of Russia. There are serious problems with his politics. But I think where where we do have to draw the line is when we are carrying the State Department line about Putin or any leader of another country is a dictator or is akin to Hitler simply because this country's government said they are. No critical examination of any of the policies and the internal contradictions within those countries, which, by the way, we have no business in because those are those countries' internal contradictions. And if folks in those countries want us involved, they would come and collect us and ask for our solidarity for that. But I think this is this is the issue. We have a difficult time and we must always continue to parse out the valid criticism of the policies of leaders that uh, the U.S. government has decided to make an enemy that are problematic, like like Lula's relationship with demonizing Haiti, you know, with with the core group. That's a problem, even though. Lula's win is a win for progressivism in Latin America. But what does that mean for for Caribbean nations, particularly Haiti? But then that's completely different from saying, oh, we can't have this dictatorial, evil communist Lula running Brazil because that's the State Department line. And there are too many folks on the left who have hopped on the State Department line far too easily in the situation of Ukraine. And we, I think this is something that we always have to be aware of and be ready to respond to in as principled a way as possible. But it's not something, Sean, that I think we can just let fly. Yeah, definitely. And quickly, I think we should also always keep in mind why it is uh, that we are involved and engaged in the anti-imperialist movement. And we can't fall into this trap of like this team sports orientation of, uh, 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 of politics. The fact of the matter is imperialism is a scourge on humanity. 
and it is directly connected and emerges out of uh, the capitalist system that is the dominant force on this earth, which I would argue itself needs to be overturned. But we're going to try to squeeze another caller uh, in here real quick. Uh, Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sean and Jackie. Great show. Just real quickly, the um, bizarro situation we have in the U.S. is that the corporate media are the state media. And the evidence of it, if you try to find out the, up to the run-up, the so-called Russian invasion, all along the way, Putin and the Russians tried to uh, do diplomacy. Hey, can you give us a written assurance that you're not going to bring NATO here? Can you give us a written assurance? We'll come to the table, we'll iron it all out, and we can avoid down the road having to come back with a can of whips on you people. Excuse my, my French. And so you did not do that, and you see that what we have here is a failure to communicate or a intentional uh, non-communication so that they have the pretext to demonize Russia and justify the uh, justify billion in arms sales to a country that most Americans can't even find on a map. Now, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Jamal, we got like four minutes left, so uh, feel free to respond here. Yeah, that wasn't a failure of communication. I mean, you must understand there are various factors that look at the world as a chessboard. And from the standpoint of, let's say, the U.S. or the EU that basically have wed themselves together, they look at themselves as being the controlling factor of the globe. Problem is, they jump the shark. They have this idea that their capability, meaning their grasp exceeded their reach. Their thought was, okay, we can continue to push, a little bit more push, push, push. And like your caller said, he made the point of saying Putin and Russia was trying diplomacy. They were screaming to the hilt, say you won't be part of NATO, say you won't be um, uh, you know, uh, um, connected to the West and everything else. Behind the scenes, they were telling Zelensky that he wouldn't be a part of NATO, but none of them would say it aloud. The United States, just like they did with Afghanistan, now what Brzezinski, this idea of dragging Russia into this kind of Vietnam, they thought that they would be able to do the same thing with Ukraine. The thought being, we could either get a fait accompli by basically surrounding that country. Keep in mind, the US policy was we would never have another power center to rival us in the way that the Soviet Union rivaled us. Well, back during that time, the real politic or realist politic they would keep China and Russia separate. After the fall of the Soviet Union, somewhere along the way, they got into their heads that we won. We are the dominant force on this planet. Do we get to tell any and everybody what to do? Well, they didn't have the power to do that. They thought they had this economic and military power that would allow them to basically run the board or to get all the way to the border. Meaning, if I can surround you with missiles and weapons, anything that kicks off, whether it is real or whether it's something that I create, it's a fait accompli. Well, not so much. Russia was put in a position of an existential crisis, in which case they got involved. They tried to negotiate. Well, the West, from their standpoint, with a certain level of arrogance and hubris, didn't believe they needed to negotiate, and they decided to get into this escapade with Ukraine. Well, they jumped the shark. And in doing so, they undermined any notion of power or dominance that they might have had over the globe if they would have actually negotiated in order to try to maintain somewhat of a stable center. That's not where we are right now. We're in calamity at this moment. And the West is not doing well with this. They're going to lose this. And this notion of one world hegemony is going to hit the skids, or these guys are going to go through. There's this concept called, what is it, the Lysian Gap, or um, the Lysian Gap. But basically, I'm saying the word wrong, but it basically boils down to a rival power going against a power that's somewhat established. And all of, oftentimes, these things go into war as a rival power doesn't necessarily want to give up power. Well, in this case, they're not necessarily going to have a choice. And the real question is, whether they're going to relent or whether they're going to keep going and turn this into something that much more cataclysmic. Yeah, definitely. And um, if 
things were to escalate into an open conflict between the U.S. and Russia, which uh, none of us want and no one should, it wouldn't just be the West that would lose. It would be basically all uh, life uh, on this planet. And see, this is what we have to bear in mind as we continue to move forward, my friends. And, you know, as I often say, it's very easy to fall into despair and feel discouraged because of everything that is uh, colliding all at once. But if we organize and fight, then we can win and change this society. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Jamal Thomas, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.